You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 237. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Uh, One of my observations in myself and other builders, whether it's you know, people who create software or people who, who design things or, or, or design products or, or create hardware. It's that the real, it's a real motivator to build something that is quality. No one wants to think of themselves as throwing crap over the wall. I mean, and you know, quality could be defined in many ways. It certainly depends on the product. Sometimes, uh, you know, quantity is important. Uh, and as part of quality, sometimes, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes speed, but whatever it is, whatever, however you define quality and what you're building, people like to take pride in their work. So today we're going to talk about not just straight up software quality, but when it comes to AI and when it comes to some of these fuzzier statistical applications where everybody is talking about ethics and bias and there's a lot of, um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of shouting and a lot of words coming out of people's mouths, but not all of it, uh, you know, some of it is more meaningful than others. How do you cut through all of that and find out what quality really means? So today's guest is both a technologist and a podcaster, and he is just full of examples and ideas. So I think you'll enjoy it a lot, and you may take away a few things to uh, look into later because there's so many stories here that it's like, oh, I want to look that up. So, uh, without further delay, our next guest is the chief technology evangelist and heads up uh, solution engineering for Eggplant, uh, Keysight Technologies company, and he also hosts the QA Lead podcast. Jonathan Wright, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. It's lovely to be here, Max. You know, a big fan of the show. Really looking forward to kind of talking to you today about quality. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm excited about that, and I'm excited to hear about your uh, podcast uh, QA lead. Uh, but but first, why don't we just jump right into it? You know, you said quality. That's a word that comes up in a lot of your work. But I want to zero in on exactly what we're talking about here, because you know we've got hardware, we've got software, and then you know we've got AI slash machine learning slash data science, which is a subset of software. But there's kind of a difference there, where you know in traditional software maybe it's like, okay, I write unit tests and I know what's input and I know what, what the output is. Whereas in, in some of these statistical applications, there's no correct answer or maybe you have to figure out what a good answer is. So uh, what, is that a fair way to categorize? And, and, and where do you fall in terms of like what, what you talk about and what you like learn about and, and, and work on? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic kind of opening kind of question really. So, you know, I think there's some some scary words in, in in all of those kind of conversations, right? You know, quality I think is is in the eye of the beholder in a way um, that makes it quite difficult for anyone to really quantify or at least put some what they mean by when they say quality. You know, this product has a higher quality than this product. Sometimes it's more of a gut feel than some type of scientific measure. Whereas sometimes, you know, I was looking at it the other day because the the Pixel 6a turned up. Sometimes it's that you look at the tech and it like for like, you go to go, well, that's the battery. You know, this is the output. This is how long it runs. This is a universal benchmark that everyone uses. 
now I know that actually that's good or that's not that good. You know, we're already kind of familiar with the quality of the products that come out of Google and Apple or whoever else. Now it's adding in those extra metrics which say, is this better quality or, you know, than the other product? Um, and so, you know, there's so many different dimensions to quality. And, and I guess when we start thinking about quality and we, we sometimes associate the process of testing that device, right? That device could be hardware. Now, obviously, if it's software, we open up Pandora's box because anyone can write software. You know, there is no driving license, you know, that you've got to pass to say that you're allowed to use Python, even though maybe it should be implemented. But, you know, part of it is what stops anyone releasing a good app with a good quality on the App Store or a bad app? And, you know, we've heard recently, you know, people like Apple turn around and say, well, actually, if your app's more than two years old, we're just going to scrap it. And you're saying, well, if it's a quality product and it works and there's a good use, solid user base, why would I need to change it? Now, of course, we all know that software changes infinite amount of times. You know, people, I remember sitting down with, with Alan Page, who, who wrote the book on how Microsoft tests. And he said, you know, we release 26 times a day to Bing. And I was like, wow you know bing looks exactly yeah. the same well that's almost time. yeah that's almost uh continuous deployment i guess it is right? well they yeah. were they, they 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 kind of the whole book kind of went into this whole canary rollout strategy thing plus all these teams that have got different levels of features that are released out in the cadence and how they plan it all together it's amazing but for me and you we go to bing or maybe we don't ever go to Bing. but to us you know those algorithm tweaks to the search engine do they really affect us do we suddenly go wow that looks completely different to what it looked like before you know and i think this is where we're in this as you put quite elegantly you know in this kind of new reality of well you've got a search engine we know how search engines work you know what have they done how have they optimized that what's changed well what does that actually mean for me if i type in dog food am i going to find my local uh, you know ethically sourced dog uh, favorite dog food you know part of it is we need to understand what those changes are and we also need to know was that good or was that a bad change that now has a decremental effect you know we yes we could just go onto twitter or social media and suddenly we get hundreds of people talking about not liking a product but, you know, what is that risk associated with your brand if you're someone like Nike or you're someone else, who, a car manufacturer? What's the brand damage of yeah. suddenly going, doing something wrong in the software landscape? And a lot of people on Twitter are just, they're, they're either fake or, or trolls or, you know, whatever. I, I feel like if you're a sufficiently big brand, you're going to have people trolling you and, you know, spreading uh, spreading FUD, spreading, you know, misinformation or, or, or whatever. I, you know, th this whole talk about Bing, it, it, it brought to mind a question, and I don't know if this is a, a question that, that you have a, an, an opinion on, but I'm going to ask it because it just came to mind because I was having a conversation a, a while ago, a few months ago, about the fact that, you know, you talk about the fact that we don't go on to Bing every, uh, you know, every so often and say, wow, this is updated, this has changed. But I think about, like, think about 15 years ago in Google I think we would do that. I think there were times you'd go on. It's like, wow, they have autocomplete now, or, or wow, I, I actually, am, am, this 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 type of search is actually working now, whereas it didn't before. And you know, I, um, I, I had this conversation. Like, 
I'm absolutely certain that Google search is way better in 2012 than it was in 2002. But is it really that much better in 2022 than it is in 2012? And I'm less certain of that. So, and I think the, the, the point is maybe they're not optimizing for, for the user as much anymore. They're optimizing for, for other things. But I don't know. Uh, do you have a, a, a take on that with search engines in general? If, if you've, I guess if you've talked to the Bing people. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I, you know, I, I used to work at Microsoft, and I, oh, okay. I haven't had the pleasure of working at Google, but I did catch up with uh, Jason, who wrote the book on how Google tests uh, with uh, one of my friends, James Whitaker, and he talks about how Google, you know, they work on the search engine, and of course, we all know they have things like anti-evil teams, which recently got disbanded, which is slightly concerning. You know, yeah. things like the black ops teams that make sure data can get in and like Google takeout, your data can get taken out as well. You know, there's teams in there which are looking at new and wonderful ideas of, com you know, adding in their maybe Tesseract or their computer vision uh, APIs to, to actually do things like detect you in the back of somebody else's photo. You know, we know they're doing all of that. You know, and we know now, like I mentioned, the Pixel 6a, we can magically mark out somebody who's in the background because it uses computer vision and some fancy Photoshop proprietary uh, algorithms to remove them, uh, that person out of existence. We know all these things are happening, but you're absolutely right. Has what was a, um, a very focused product kind of gone into potentially lots of different realms of, you know, how do we deal with data privacy? What does restrictions does that have? What does that affect the end user in? You know, I always amazed when I see people who can actually use Google and they actually type in lyrics, brackets, and then a subset of the, the string they're looking for or a grouping. And then they go down to filter. I only want articles that have been posted in the last 24 hours. And they really use it as a search engine, especially within the academia landscape. So part of it is, it's a powerful tool, but also as those features come in, and I think this is a really big one for the software community is they don't have a, a rest in peace day. You know, we've just lost Internet Explorer and, you know, that historically was the most successful browser because it ran from 1994 to 2022 until it was end of life. And halfway through up to 2004, it was still had 70% of the majority share of usage, right? It was only when uh, uh, Firefox came in, it, Firefox lost, and then obviously Chromium kind of became the industry standard. But, you know, part of it is if you create a new feature or lack of feature in uh, Internet Explorer's case, you know, how long do you support that? That autocorrect function, which you thought was fantastic, you know, at what point do you go, well, now that we're worried about things like fake news and, you know, all this other stuff, as I starting to type, uh, I like dog food, and then it starts completing with, but my partner won't eat it. You know, you start getting to the point where you're saying, well, actually, I don't want that feature, or I'm not using that feature in the same way that I, maybe I used uh, mail merge back in the days with the original word processors on WordPerfect. You know, part of it is that feature should have been decommissioned a long time ago. And I was recently in Munich talking to an automotive company who turned around to me and said, you know, we obviously sell these connected cars now. And, you know, we've said that we're going to support them and the mobile app for 20 years. 
However, what are mobile apps going to look like in 20 years? And we're still going through trying to unpick having browsers on our cars. You know, mm-hmm. why would they? Ha- why would anyone browse an internet page on a car? <laughs> and you know, more important, it's not especially got the if you have your phone. Exactly on you know while you're driving as well. Yeah, you yeah. Know, well, that's bad. Yeah, with a big QWERTY keyboard that you're dealing with a center console. So part yeah. of it is it's a great idea that we could have a browser or a DVD player in our car. It just doesn't make practical sense, and that you have to support it for that period of time. So I think part of where you see Bing and the evolution of organizations that maybe have adopted continuous delivery and deployment, you know, maybe they're getting to the point where they're more focused on the canary, the, uh, you know, understanding the dark, dark launching of features to then do controlled experiments to say, well, actually, you know, we are going to have to end of life this fantastic function, or we're going to have to replace it with something better. But we're going to look at how the behavior of the users are and hopefully autonomous, you know, anonymously do deal with that for our data privacies after the great hack and Netflix and too much lockdown time. People realize just how much information Google, Alexa, you know, Siri are capturing and then how they're using that information from an NLP perspective to start breaking these structures so you know surprise surprise i talk about something or i visit a geo location i suddenly start getting advertisements from google it's not like it's not related you know we know that we're there's a consumer side of that and they've obviously got to pay the bills but how do you test it how do you test ethically how do you make sure data's not got bias in it you know all of these really difficult challenges are set in the way of how do we you know ethically test and uh, and ensure quality and also brand protection. Yes, Elon pulled out of the deal because he realized that only 20% of the accounts were active. If we've got this fake news coming through, we've got this ability that maybe we've you've you've not been hacked because you know you're not big enough yet so once you get to that point where you are in the media uh, and you have something to lose how much you know brand protection does your software provide you compared to you know the potential criticism that people are going to have with launching you know a new product and i give the 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 example for B, for bmw uh, who i may or may not have been talking about earlier on Last week, they launched um, heated seats as a service. So they pretty much said all of our cars going forwards are going to have heated seats. However, when you buy it, you will have to go into the BMW marketplace and you will have to pay $6.99 a month. Even though the heater is there. Pardon? Even though the heater is there. That's absurd. (laughs) (laughs) But it makes a lot of sense. You think about things like gamification, right? There's 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 research being done to say that you won't utilize a feature if you're just giving it straight away. However, if you've earned it, you would start using it. So if I reverse park awesomely for 100 times, then it enables the reverse camera, which a camera is going to cost you six bucks. You know, your camera's suddenly there or you get auto park or you get... You know, you're driving, you know, responsibly and not aggressively and suddenly autopilot or lane assist starts coming in or, you know, you pay for it. You pay for the heated seat, you pay for the heated steering wheel. But again, it's software. It's a software marketplace. And, you know, I can buy Netflix for the same price. Which one's giving me the most value, especially while it's 40 degrees in the UK? 
Yeah, I, I have so many follow-ups on, on all of these. I mean, my, my thought in the car, like, I don't know if I like the idea of being, of having to think about all these transactions, you know, while I just, I just, I just want to have my car and be able to do whatever it can do. Um, but I, I, I actually, I want to come back to something you mentioned before, uh, which is um, the, uh, the, 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 the rest in peace date, because this is something that I have trouble with, um, whether it's at work or, or, or personally in projects. It's like, okay, how do you simplify things and remove things that you built? Uh, I have trouble letting go sometimes. Sometimes I know I, at work we've removed things, and then it was like, oof, I kind of wish we hadn't. Um, and then sometimes you try to merge two things and it's like, wow, this is a very expensive merge. If we like, you know, merge two companies or two products that are similar, how is that something that is, um, the, um, do you have any like strategies of dealing with that or kind of rules of thumb? Yeah, definitely. So we, we do it in our product development life cycles at the moment is that, you know, if you've done, uh, crossing the chasm, um, you know, Red Crossing the Chasm or, or any other product development uh, books from Jeffrey Moore. You know, he talks about, you know, early adopters versus the laggards versus the, the early mainstream and the late mainstream. So, you know, those early adopters are quite happy to put up with stuff. And I, I typically associate those with kind of gen alpha as well. They're quite happy if they're getting some new experimental. If it's a bit buggy, it's fine. But then the wants and needs for the early majority and the late majority are much more kind of, you know, if you pull a feature out, which they're doing, they could rage quit and just not use, right? And there's this kind of, of course, there's analytics and things like Firebase on, on, on most of mobile apps. And you've got this kind of hit and run viewpoint where people load an app, launch it. If it doesn't resonate with them in seconds, they remove it. You know, and, and partly what I, I did in the, the book for software testing in AI, I talked about Dark Canary, this kind of idea of being able to kind of do the opposite of, of dark launching, but actually look at feature functionality and experience that people are having with those apps to understand how their app experience should be, but also pull out some more of the behavioral stuff that's coming in. And actually, I was last week, I, I, I did a, I was in uh, Santa Clara and uh, in Stanford University with uh, Dr. M Emma, um, sorry, Dr. Uh, Poppy Crum, who is a neuroscientist, and she was talking about exactly this. She was kind of going on to the fact that about human emotion, right? You're having a bit of a bad day. You load an app up. It doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is because it's not connected to the internet. How can that possibly happen in 2022 where it doesn't come up with a screen that says, oh, you just don't have any internet and that nice picture of a puppy or something. You know, part of it is, you know, we're, we're failing at the fundamentals, but we're not looking or analyzing the user journeys in enough detail, right? But also it's not just uh, one full, you know, that uh, rule to, to rule them all. Each cultural adoption of an application or like Bing could be also slightly different. So I give a, an example. I remember working with the guys at a pizza organization in Detroit in the US, and it was a big Java house, brilliant stack, did some really cool stuff. And then back in the UK, uh, sorry, back at the UK was a Java stack, and then the US was a, a Microsoft stack, right? And, you know, part of it is they set, turned around and said, oh, we want, you know, I came back to the UK and they said, oh, we want to do what the US guys are doing and we want to do gluten-free. I said, okay, so let's look at the numbers. You know, they had 20% increase in, in sales from the first six months. 
And they turned around to me and said, can you implement it? And I said, the back end, front end systems, of course, we can do it. We can do it in six weeks because we're doing, you know, DevOps uh, or playing DevOps, whatever you want to use it as. Uh, and, you know, we released the feature in and surprise, surprise, six months later, the feature is on and it's generating 20%, exactly the same as the US. And we're like, wow, this is amazing. And then I came back a year later and they said the exact same thing. They went through, we went through the Splunk uh, analytics and we looked at it and it was performing exactly how, how it had performed in the US. A year and a half later, I came back in and because I'm boring and I always say the same thing, I literally said, let's pull up the Splunk uh, analytics and look again. And then suddenly he was horrified in the sense that they were making a massive loss for about 40,000 a day because no one was buying gluten-free products anymore. And I was like, how's this changed since, the, when did it change? And they correlated it to when they stopped advertising gluten-free on the front page of the actual website. So actually at that point, suddenly they realized that actually natively people would still buy gluten-free in the US, but in the UK, we weren't that bothered about gluten-free. And so actually all the waste and everything else actually made them a loss. So we backed out that feature because at the end of the day, it needed to rest in peace. Now, of course, that could mean that you need to bottle it back in at a later date when suddenly everyone gets worried about gluten or COVID free or whatever it is. But, you know, this is the kind of th the way that you've got to be able to do these experiments. And you've also got to be able to measure and monitor them. But over time, it isn't just you know, let's have a look at the analytics today and make a hypothesis that that's the answer. You've got to really understand the time, the culture, the region, the user and buyer behavior, and, and, and then understand why that step change has happened. So, so you mentioned, you, you talked about in, in all these examples, and I think this is particularly, um, uh, you know, the, the, this is a, a particularly big problem when it comes to, um, you know, advertising and, and pushing people into doing things. Talk about testing ethically. Um, do you have some examples of maybe uh, some people who uh, were not testing ethically or, um, you know, times when, you know, maybe you, you, you've been asked to do things or, 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 or someone's been pushing to do things that, that, that were not ethical testing? Yeah, so, so it's interesting. So I, I used to work for a, a company which uh, did the Tesco club card now, the, the, which, you know, then extended out into um, uh, Macy's and, and Kroger in, in, in the US. And, you know, part of it is they were taking till data and they were running that till data nearly in real time to understand by, by behavior, right? But then individually, they also started profiling people to understand whether or not you are what type of you know shopper you are now i think the problem with and we're going back to the, the the kind of the great hack kind of challenge is the more data that you collect that data you need to really be able to a opt in and opt out and also understand what data you've got now of course gdpr and the californian data privacy gave us this ability to to ask for that data but the problem is it's not just one source there's upstream and downstream people which is why i was surprised when i was in the states last week they had the advert with the rhinoceros or something, which was saying, you know, you take a loan out and then you just get spam phone calls all the day, all day long. Is There's a misuse of data. Oh, I don't think you have to take a loan out to get spam calls all day long. 
<laughs> yeah, or it's, even just sign up to anything. But yeah, sometimes they tell me my car payments are behind, but I, I used to get those calls before I had a car. So it was like, <laughs> so I, I know they're... <laughs> it's, it's the new reality. And it's the same way we don't see spam anymore. And we yeah. might all say it's because we've got an ad blocker, but it's not. It's because we've suddenly seen this change in the way that we behave and adopt and evolve as people. And so to your point on the advertising, I, I work with a company that do, do as adaptive uh, product marketing. So the World Cup was the first example where one person could be watching it in one room, someone watching it in, in the other, and there will be different banners in the background scrolling mm-hmm. through. Now, a lot of that is 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 not random, but it's it's kind of who's paid for the most slice of the pie. But it can get to that point where it can start understanding, you know, Diablo uh, obviously got into a lot of trouble uh, or Blizzard did with the mobile launch. And obviously the again, going back to the BMW thing, but they're kind of the micro transactions, but also because they released it with eye tracking SDKs in there. So whenever there's a large app, people put more scrutiny on it and they looked at it and was like, why have they got eye tracking? And why is it only enabled in the North American region and not China? Now we know why it isn't. How are they doing eye tracking? Is it actually using the camera? Yes, and it's using okay. it so it's natively looking. without opting in. Yeah, so you're crazy. not opting to get the camera. It's a native function, and the native function is seeing where you're looking on the screen. Now, if you add that to emotional de- detection, you could then start getting a feedback mechanism of you know, where is engaging. So I, I worked with a company which is a, a kind of a Netflix production company with clickable everything you saw on the screen you could buy so part of it is and you've probably seen it in instagram it's kind of what facebook are working on at the moment and google marketplace doing the same is if i take a photo of you now i can buy the painting that you have in the back of your uh, your your screen but also right. as our last call those south african artifacts it will also match the the pattern and go and find a shop which has them in store and i can buy that experience without leaving to sign up and register on some other weird website i can do all those transactions whilst i'm talking to you or if i'm you 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 become in essence the advertiser but more importantly because of the depth of field on the cameras uh, and and lindar on, on on most normal phones now you could it, they could manipulate that actual image to include other things so those uh south african artifacts if i was you know a big um fan of friends it could swap out pictures dynamically in the back now we know this is things like nfts and you know again it's that kind of question about ownership but it's also that kind of question of saying well actually you're this is my space if i take a photo you shouldn't be selling my friend's t-shirt that that you like because (laughs) You know, where's my cut? You know, part of it is I think we're starting to see kind of misuse of technology, but you know that anti-evil team that got disbanded in in Google, which my friend Jason left slightly after, because teams were just going, okay, I'm just going to walk over to the Google Maps guys and go, can I have all your data to do this weird thing and run this big kind of uh, you know data lake, you know, and, and do some training on it. And they were like, yeah, now you can. You couldn't before. <clears throat> but, you know, part of it is without those kind of people who are in those AI ethics kind of roles, you know, the misuse of data could get quite happy, you know, could, can happen quite quickly. And, and as you said, yeah. you know, with your 
personal development. You know, you're developing stuff in, in essence, sometimes for yourself, you know, as developers, we're building something that we think we would use. You know, part of it is we're building that bias into it as well. So, you know, how do we avoid all of that? So we're actually building it something for the customer. And of, of course, people say, well, you know, the customer doesn't know what they want or, you know, it's a new product. How can anyone know what it, how it's going to resonate? But, you know, part of this is a new way of development. It's a new way of rapid prototyping, experimenting, fail fast, learn rapidly kind of landscape where we're having to bring in AI and machine learning to give us a lot of the unknown unknowns and take the large amounts of data, which is in a chaotic environment where there's huge amounts of exhaust data and try and make some sense out of it to say we're seeing buying, you know, purchasing habits in a particular way or we're seeing people digitally disengaged with the products. And yeah, this is a whole stack of new people who have, have not yet been born probably. So yeah. So I, I, I the, you mentioned some, uh, some like ethical kind of dilemmas, which I am actually, I'm not sure how, how I feel about it. Certainly like the, uh, the eye tracking thing without your permission, that, that, that's totally creepy. Um, if I put out something publicly and some company wants to, sell based on something that I had in the video. I mean, yes, I would like a cut, but I don't, hmm, I don't, I don't know if that's really, I don't know if there's a victim there. I feel like I'm putting that out publicly. I feel like maybe that's not that bad. I don't know. <laughs> How do you feel about that? Yeah. Well, if we think of a meme, right, you know, part of yeah. it is it starts off with some most likely copyrighted image from some kind of TV series. And, you know, one of the things which I love about the um, IMDB, and, and it's, it goes back into this metaverse uh, example use case that I gave, is you can go on IMDB and look at any product and it'll show you where it appeared in every single uh, uh, movie. So they do it. Oh, for I didn't know that. Purposes. Oh, that's cool. So, so if you're seeing a car chase and the matrix and there's yeah. a new shiny Lincoln one, one five, eight or whatever it is, they have to record where it was, how long it was in for. And so therefore you could actually see where other Lincolns appeared in different films and so on and so forth, which is, you know, but if you think about that, you think about the dimensions of a car, then it's very easy with, uh, with uh, Lindar and other technologies to actually then remove that and out remove it to something else. Now, if we think of things like uh, mixed reality, which is kind of what I'm doing at the moment, you know, I had a call with Meta yesterday, but prior to that, I was in uh, Silicon Valley last week talking to uh, the guys who are doing the, the mixed reality headsets, which you can probably guess, uh, they also do uh, PC operating systems. But, you know, part of it is they're obviously using that mixed reality for DOD contracts where they're in battlefields, you know, they've got you know, extreme temperature, they're trying to overlay information about maybe the engine management system or a particular, you know, piece of military equipment, how to fix it, critical infrastructure. They're getting and overlaying all these feeds. And then the same couple of weeks ago, we know obviously um, uh, Zuckerberg has launched uh, the um, Oculus Pro, but he's going to bring out a mixed reality headset. Google at Google.io are also bringing out Google Glasses 2, which we know the privacy problems with Google Glasses 1. Oh, wow. That was like 10 years ago. It was. And so I have a copy yeah. of them. I also have a photo of me wearing them. And I look like an absolute I, I've always wondered when those were coming back. I, you know, maybe we'll have an episode on that. We, we should do. Yeah. And, and, and the other one is, is, is obviously is Apple, right? And we know it's 2024 to 2025 when they're going to 
start doing consumerism, but they're all the same blueprint. They're all using mm -hmm. eye tracking. So we're actually having to emulate the movement of an eye so that we can see if the, then the, the glasses move what's on the screen to actually the way that you're looking. So if they're looking over a piece of equipment, it refocuses the information on there. Now, this might be a new way to interact with people from a human computer interaction perspective, but we talked about, I think, the minority report, but, you know, is this going to mean that we the death of the mobile phone is going to happen, mobile again, and then what's going to happen is we're going to start getting these new, you know, blurring the boundaries between technology and the real world where, you know, you get into your car, it overlays your sat nav, you know, people are com doing conversations, you know, you're interacting with people and it's telling them how many children they've got, what their favorite, you know, color is, you know, at what point do we stop and how does this new world potentially affect how software development happens? But also, you know, of course, we're talking about the metaverse. It's a new kind of concept, which feels like it's a long way away from maybe Beat Saber yeah. and, you know, and, and the adoption from, you know, PlayStations, right? Yeah, I, I, we talked about that world at, when I worked at Foursquare all the time. I, I mean, especially with Dennis Crowley, who's been on this show uh, a few times. Um, I, I want to get back to this future stuff's really interesting. Maybe we'll get back to that. But I, 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 wanted, to, um, I wanted to talk about... AI bias, that's something that's talked to, we talk about a lot on, on the show. And to be honest, like sometimes when people talk about AI bias, I feel like they are just trying to, um, sometimes it's like buzzwords for, for funding and, and they're not really defining what they're actually talking about. Or in some cases, it's like, you know, not at all uh, what, um, you know, it, it's, I, I always feel like, Oh, I'm working on AI bias, and then I don't have to actually explain um, what I'm doing because everyone agrees that's important. And I'm a little skeptical sometimes. But what do you think? What like alarms go off for you when someone claims that an AI is biased and needs to be corrected? And what what's like the what would you say is the legitimate like um, um, uh, questions to ask about you know some. I'm talking about AI, but really just any statistical algorithm. Sure. No, great question. So I'm part of the European um, uh, European Commission AI Alliance, which they published a high-level ethics, AI ethics document. Hey, Al, but you can find it if you go for um, the AI Alliance. And, and it put down some fundamental requirements, law, legal requirements that people need to do to, when they're coming to, uh, when they're applying ethics to AI. And then the BCS and also the ISO also released a new ethical guideline for AI frameworks. So I sit on the uh, review committee for 29119 part 11, which is testing within AI. So that's kind of how you apply, how you test AI based systems. Now, of course, this kind of highlights this this problem is like, what are you, what are the questions that you need to ask? And, you know, and what are you looking for? And I, I kind of put together a bit um, for the book, which I referred to as gated.ai, which was the, 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 the link to the, to the blog, which I wrote, but it was all around putting goals, accuracy, um, and of course, um, tr uh, transformation and data in, in essence is kind of the main things and it was looking at where the data sources came from originally and now when we did things like the MIT COVID uh, you know uh, uh, contact tracing stuff we used 
deltas from things like Google uh, Takeout to create 20 bil- uh, 2 billion historical transactions of people moving around the city of Boston. Of course, those deltas came from me, or actually they came from my friend Iran. All the deltas for London came from me over a period of four years. We just cre- synthetically created those uh, out of a base. Now, of course, they have a bias. Maybe that bias is because I'm lazy and I won't walk anywhere. I might taxi and underground a lot more than most people would do. But when I'm building that, even though in that particular case, it was, you know, it was a, it was a, a, a free, well, it was an open source uh, contributor p- project, we had to take our data from somewhere to be able to train the systems. We had to use it to train to say it's going to get false positives. So when we started, you know, the PathCheck Foundation, we, re- you know, part of it was these real challenges of how do we take some kind of realistic model? Now, a lot of people will say, okay, well, we'll just synthetically generate or we'll obfuscate some other other data with something that's completely randomized. But we all know nothing in the world's randomized, even if it's the system clock or some air frequency that they use. You know, part of it is there's nothing random and the data must come from somewhere. So understanding the, the, the sources of knowledge of where the data is coming from on the training sets is, is absolutely important. And then secondly is is avoiding things like overtraining, right? Is, you know, part of it is, you know, just because they want to get to a point where... Hold on, I I want to get into overtraining, but I just, I want to try to summarize this to make sure that I I understand. Um, So essentially, like, um, it's hard to correct for um, input data that is, uh, that has some kind of bias or some kind of issue with it. And that's kind of the first thing to look is to understand where you're getting the data. Now, obviously, now the paper that I wrote uh, about correcting bias is like, if you know that the you have some source and then that source has been through some filter, how do you undo that filter? Whereas, but the original source is still <laughs> uh, still stands as you know, it's very difficult to uh, for a, an algorithm to correct for that, or maybe even possible uh, if if you have some kind of uh, some kind of issue going into it. Um, is that, uh, is that a fair assessment? Maybe I, maybe I could summarize it a little better. No, no, I, I think that's, a, it's a great assessment. I think, you know, we, the, we gave another example around, um, you know, a leading fashion brand, which were, you know, I was involved in their training against images, which they, they wanted to train to say, well, it's a t-shirt, it's red, you know, it's a certain size, it's a male t-shirt, it's got a logo on it, it's got a pattern on it. And of course, people have trained um, and have available algorithms that do that, right? Um, However, they're not specific to how your organization works, right? They're a more generalized version of that. Now, of course, you know, the best way for you to optimize that is having it something which is similar to the set which you're actually expecting to process through it. But also, I suppose you have to think about once you've gone through what's the testing is making sure you're keeping the testing training status separate, and it's also a, a similar size. So that way you can you can you can validate it. So you know part of it is the ones the developers working with the testing one, and also one for de- deployment. So you can then start seeing also once you're in the real world, well, what's what is the data that's going through the pipeline there, and how is that affecting maybe the misclarification rate or something else? So you know part of it is yes, having like you said data which is good, you know then that's the ultimately hard problem. 
you know, and also it's how your organization works. So if you are a t-shirt company, you'll have thousands of, or hopefully hundreds of thousands of photos of your t-shirt. So of various different angles of it, you know, which you can start feeding in. Now you might have a certain camera, a certain resolution, and you might always do it on a, on a back black background or, uh, you know, uh, but you might see that the training data that you're training it with, you might be using from Bing images, right? Which has got, you know, trees in the background and stuff you know part of it is you've got to try and get as close to what you're trying to get it to replicate as physically possible and sometimes you are your own internal best source for this it's just a case of then understanding the the associated metadata that's supporting that image i.e what's been enriched to then be able to understand how do i do better with what i've got and then if what I've got is rubbish and it's garbage in, garbage out, then how do I find something which is going to be suitable for what my desired state is? And you might say, well, I don't know what the desired state is. You know, it could be we're doing at the moment with Unity frameworks, training um, uh, our computer vision within a, a VR environment. And it just has no reference to what it's looking at because it's kind of saying, here's a picture of me walking around Doom or something. This is what it should look like. This is what it actually looks like. Is this correct? And the answer is most of the time, no, because of the way that, that it's curved and it's slightly weird and how it's been projected within the VR and the frequency and everything else. So yeah. it is very difficult to get the, the fidelity around that. So this is kind of a, a strategy that, that I've used, but maybe you could tell me if there's any uh, pitfalls on this is usually you have a large data set and you're like, great, I'm going to, I'm going to build some models off this data set, but mm -hmm. I know it's got problems. So what I do is I build a smaller data set that's like, you know, human curated, where it's like, okay, I'm actually either I personally am checking each one, uh, you know, step by step or, you know, as, as just kind of, it's not enough data to, it's, it, because it's more expensive to do that, it's not enough data to get a model on, uh, but uh, it's enough to kind of be a little check to see how far off I am. Now, the problem with that is like, you know, you're still not doing anything about the bias of the, uh, of the engineer or, or product developer. Uh, you know, that's, <laughs> that, that's another problem. Cause when, when they say they're getting rid of bias, I often think that, okay, they're just replacing it with their own bias, depending on what it is. I mean, some, some, some problems are a little bit more black and white than other problems. So, so yeah, I think great, great point. And, you know, I, I, I think I've mentioned before about using things like uh, MTurk, uh, you know, Amazon uh, Mechanical yeah, Turk I've used for, that, yeah. for, for image clarification of, uh, so you've got your best known set of data, which has been validated with human augmentation, right? Which I think that is the key is human augmentation in this kind of plat. But like I said, some things like bracelets, you don't know if it's an ankle bracelet, you've got no viewpoint of size unless there's a, a coin or a note next to it, you know, it, it suddenly becomes, again, perception and you're reliant on humans to who can make mistakes. Of course, they do make mistakes. Now, one of the things which I know most of us have got office on that, our computers, right? Those little happy smiley faces that they used to have to kind of get feedback in the product. They actually use that internally for enterprise crowd testing. So whenever they've got something that's a bit weird, I'm not saying it for ML usage, but, you know, it could be within the product. So someone's got a weird drop down for mail merge, which they should never be in mail merge ever again. But if they did, it would show somebody within the organization and they get a human to do it, but they'd also distribute it to anyone who opted in. 
So the idea is that culturally within the entire organization, it wasn't just product managers, developers, PMs, salespeople, whatever. They were looking at it and going, does this look right to you? No. Or, you know, they would give people within their organization. So enterprise crowd testing, I think is really useful. And then crowd testing in general is really useful. And, you know, I can give a, which I, I'll probably finish off with, but, you know, back to the pizza company, you know, we did a whole thing around drunk crowd testing, you know, and you, we used it. We had to pay these people to be intoxicated. And what we found was there was a drop off. The reason why we, we did the study in the first place, there was a drop off of pizza ordering on a Friday night at a certain time. And, you know, so we paid a whole stack of crowd testers who came back and said, the buttons aren't big enough. You know, um, you know, why do I have to sign in as soon as I click on I want a pizza? Uh, and, and so suddenly we learned from that and changed the behavior. So it actually changed the application or the flow through the application and allow you to not ch do the checkout till the end with the viewpoint that at that point, you might be slightly intoxicated, but you've already committed the last five minutes ordering the right pizza and all the sides that actually 30 seconds trying to find your password and, and doing it a few times. You're not yeah. too prepared to, oh, I don't know what the app loads. I don't know what my password is. I'll go somewhere else. Is, you know, part of it is the behaviors change. Crowd testers, you can literally say, we want this demographic with this age, with this group, and we want to find, you know, we want to prove a particular hypothesis. And you can scale up and scale down. And the cost per unit is really low in the same way that Amazon Turkey is per hour for, for compute, computational human brain power, should we call it? Yeah. I, I want to make sure we got to something that, because I kind of interrupted you to go deeper into the um, into bias of the training set. Was there something else? There was something else that you were adding to that. Um, I think I forgot what it was. <laughs> there's, there's so much bias to everything. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like you said, it is the kind of, you know, the, the ethics and bias are the usual talking points of where we get stuck right. today. But, you know, again, back to kind of my, the Stanford professor last week, she was, you know, same as I was really disappointed that the heat sensor is not going to be in the new AirPod, uh, AirPod Pros, right? And she was really cr critical because for her research, she needs more data. So for more data, she wants more people to opt in and have more correlations, same as when we were doing the vaccine passport. We want to start pulling more digital health information so that we can use this to inform and do research for good, AI for good, right? You know, which you've heard before. However, the use of AI for bad greatly outweighs maybe the use case for AI for good. But, you know, part of it is why are we trying to do it? And therefore, you know, Wozniak did this session for us um, last year. And when I was chatting with him, he talked about explainable AI. And what he was trying to say is that if you can't explain what you're doing, then it's not a real thing. And I know that's very high level, but he was trying to kind of put it into the point where we're digressing. So all the way back to your starting point, you know, was turned around and he said, you know, I remember when I used to be able to say, and I, I have got an iPhone next to me, so we'll see how bad this is. But, you know, he said, you know, I used to be able to say to her, hey, Siri, what time is it? And straight away, it would respond. He says he tries it now and it doesn't respond and it just hasn't responded there. And I've got my iPhone uh, right here. Um, yeah. And the reason is, and it is turned on, is because, you know, it used to be a localized feature that would just do most of the NLP stuff locally. And then now it goes off into X amount of different jumps before it even comes back. And then it comes back with a response. I'm sorry, I couldn't understand what you said. 
And so part of it is we, we from a bulletproof capability to ask what time it is, which is what 90% of people do when they ask it, or maybe not, but, you know, to now it's digressed. But if you try to speak to anybody at Apple and try to get them to explain how any of the functionality works and the reliance on all the different subsystems and other systems that are just a consumer of their capability, it's so complex that actually you know, it's it's not simple anymore. It's to the point where, you know, you've kind of lost your way a little bit because if it doesn't work and you can't ask it what time it is, then isn't that a fail? And that's the whole question what we started with is, you know, what, aha, uh-huh. so Siri's finally- Got it, up. finally. Yeah, there's definitely a theme of like, simplification and explainability that I hear from you and that I come back to a lot. I know as an engineer, I have um, tendencies to- go away from that sometimes because I'm always thinking higher and higher level. Uh, but uh, then you kind of want to go back and, 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 and I guess, try to try to try to clean things up. And that's always, that could always be a painful process. Um, we are, you know, we're, we're up against time a little bit, but I just want to ask you for a definition of, of something that, 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 that you talk about and, and then we'll wrap up. So what is a, a digital twin? Yeah, <laughs> that might be the most difficult question out of all of today. You know, oh, we, I didn't realize that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I literally, you know, the, the panel discussion we were on last week uh, in in Stanford was about digital twins. And we had the ap- academic viewpoint of a digital twin. And a digital twin is a representation of a system, a physical system or a, or a software system, right? Uh, however, we usually refer to digital twins when we think we create a digital twin of a power plant or a you know a a weather machine you know it's something which we can emulate or simulate so that we understand within its confined areas what does the wind turbine do what's the possible permutations it can do how long does it take to start up what's the tolerances for the components we create a digital twin to test that system within you know an inch of its life plus all the edge cases when we talk about software digital twins we're extending that into exactly what you've just said which is you know as a developer the high level ecosystem of ecosystem of ecosystem dependency of all these complex systems to create a digital twin or model that is incredibly complex so modeling a digital twin of a, a very simple system is easy and it at the end of it, it's explainable. And to, you know, my friend Dan North came, did behavior, uh, created behavior driven development. And, you know, part of it is he kind of said, you know, the idea of what he was trying to do is to make it explainable. You know, you can turn around and say, you know, uh, a user that's a certain age should get a certain experience. A user in China should not have their eyes checked, you know, uh, the eye tracking turn on. Part of it was explainable to the business and the three amigos. So you could all work together and agree on making it um, not ambiguous and actually understand and interpret things correctly. We've now got to this point where systems are so complex that we use hardware abstraction layers and, 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 and abstract the complexity so that we can then expose an endpoint to something which is much simpler and is much more explainable. But again, it's maybe not explainable for the people that are consuming it and what that means. So, you know, if Steve Jobs and, and Wozniak were trying to work out, I want a phone that can tell me, tell the time, they may have wrote a use case that said, I don't have internet access and I'm walking down the street. I want to ask my phone what time it is. It should tell me the time. If it doesn't, as far as they're concerned, that feature is failed. So, mm-hmm. you know, part of it is that might change over time, but our reliance on the technology and complexity has yeah. just made it impossible to validate. 
I was thinking in terms of digital twin, like like users, like you're mocking up a, a fake user. In the case of Foursquare, where I worked, maybe you're mocking up where I'm going all day, or maybe you're maybe in in some website. You're, I mean, I mean, this would be like a QA use case, you know, just mocking up where what someone does on the website. Um, I'm sure that's that's related. It, it is. And, and so there's two things with that. One of it is we call what we refer to as real user testing or you know, is this kind of viewpoint of, well, what does a real user do? What's the behaviors that they do? Maybe they drop their phone down the toilet on a Friday night or something. What are those kind of weird nuances? But then also to your point, you know, actually Oxford uh, released a study around if you could create a digital twin of yourself, would you a do it? And then also in the gig economy, would you allow it to go and work for you? And then again, would you then ethically have to work out, I don't want it to work for pharmaceuticals. I don't want to work it for financial services. I want to do it for humanitarian uses. And it's only going to get $3 an hour if I do that. But that's where I want my digital twin to work. There is a question in the future with transcendence and Johnny Depp now that he's, you know, won the only ever time when he's, uh, he's been right with a woman, you know, part of it. You know, that battle's come out, you know, if you watch the movie, uploads his, uh, the, his, his brain into the internet. And then, you know, part of it is, are we going to get to that point where we're using Elon's Nero lace <laughs> technology to plug ourselves in and upload a digital twin of ourselves? I think the answer is, we don't know. It sounds like scientific, scientific kind of sci-fi, but, you know, it's not that far away and, you know, each each iteration of the narrow AI is getting to more generalized AI. And, you know, we could be somewhere completely different in, I'm going to say 20 years, but, you know, yeah. it's probably 30. Yeah. Oh, all right. So, yeah, yeah. This is, we have so many threads to pull on that I could then, uh, you know, create whole entire episodes on. Uh, but uh, I think it's a good time to wrap up. We're about uh, out of time. We're at 12. Um, so just to wrap up, tell me some like, Closing thoughts and summary. Tell me about your podcast, uh, QA Lead, and where can we find you online? Yeah, sure. So um, you can, of course, the, the podcast is theqalead.com. It's a Vancouver-based podcast. Hit the 50 mark, uh, slowing down a little bit. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's all about what that means for kind of quality and quality engineering for, for software teams. Um, you know, I'm really easy to find online. If you go to linkedin.com slash in, and then use the, my username's automation. You know, I, I, the people to refer to me as the automation cyborg sent back in time to save humanity from bad software. I haven't quite managed to fix that yet, but I will do. But we'll have to get you on the show and extend this or even put this onto the show and, and yeah, get you, you some of the stuff that you've done. I, I read through the white paper and, you know, you guys have been doing some amazing stuff at Foursquare. So we'll have to follow it up with another session. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was uh, that was written uh, after I, I was done working at Foursquare and I finally had time to write it. But uh, yeah, happy to talk about all of that. Uh, Jonathan, I, I'd love to come on, on your show, by the way. Um, Jonathan, thanks for coming on The Local Maximum today. Really appreciate it. I think it gave us a lot of uh, good examples and uh, food for thought. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Max. And yeah, make sure you sign up to the uh, uh, Maximum uh, podcast. All right. What a great interview. That's it for today. Um, Next week, I kind of feel like I haven't uh, gone through, you know, we've done a bunch of news updates. We've done a bunch of interviews. Haven't gone through in in a few weeks, you know, some of the things that I'm working on and some of the things that I've learned recently, whether it's technical or, um, 
or 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 anything else just just some some interesting uh, uh just some interesting stories and uh and things that I've read so I, I kind of want to do a, a a solo show and go through some of that uh over the next week or so um and yeah of course we'll continue with our probability distribution of the week next week have a great week everyone that's the show to support the local maximum Sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at LocalMaxRadio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to LocalMaxRadio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.